Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I'm John Gersma, and as always, I'm with my co-host and Harris Poll Chief Strategy Officer, Libby Rodney. Libby, what's up? Oh, John, it's it's currently fall in New York City, isn't it? <laughs> it's crisp, right? Yeah. It's getting a little chilly. I love it, though. You want to get into it? You want to talk yeah, data like we always jump. do? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if you're new to the show, we try to give you the pulse on what's happening each week in American society, highlighting the cultural shifts that impact the marketplace and business. But Libby, really, in a real way, I think what we tr- try to do is just record the way we talk, right? We, <laughs> You and I just take this data and we start looking at it, arguing at it from both sides, trying to understand what it means. And I think that's really sort of the focus of our show. I think data and conversation is the key to trying to understand data. All right. Well, we got a nice review this week. I just want to read this real quick. JRP says, a must listen for market researchers and anyone interested in up-to-date societal trends. So thanks, JRP. That's nice. Uh, well, let's get into it. Libby, what are we going to cover in this week's episode? Yes. So we have three stories for you. We have the first one is where are workers the most happy? And it's not at the office or at home. So we'll tell you where that is in a second. Uh, the second story is one of the hottest brands for job seekers is actually headed to court. And it has Elon's must notorious name written all over it. And then the third story is workers aren't just quietly quitting, John. They're actually quietly upskilling. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, hey. First, we're going to get into what we do every week, which is the weekly heat. These are three of the week's most important numbers. And what we're going to talk about in these three numbers, Libby, is everybody's favorite topic, inflation. So, um, you know, I want you to imagine there's two doors, right? Door number one is inflation. Door number two is go into a recession. We basically put that question this week in Harris polling to Americans. And Libby, guess what? Half the country will take door number one. The other (laughs) half will take door number two. But I think it's really interesting. Here's the numbers. So 50% of Americans say they would actually prefer to tame inflation quickly, even if it meant going into a recession. And that's versus the opposite, the other half, which said, let's avoid a recession, even if if it means that inflation and these higher prices continue to rise. So I think that's really significant, Libby, because taming inflation, you know, often means higher interest rates to curb spending. That leads to unemployment. And we saw also in the the data this week that, you know, four in 10 Americans, 42% are concerned about losing their jobs, and that's up four points. But, you know, what's kind of interesting behind this is the belief a little bit in the old Fed chairman, Paul Volcker from the 70s, who (laughs) took crazy high interest rates in order to finally tamp down inflation. But Americans think it just might work, right? Six in 10, 58% believe that the increase will have an impact on bringing down inflation in the next six months. And younger Americans are the most optimistic. (laughs) Those numbers go even higher at 71% for Gen Z and 66% for millennials. And I think that's important, lastly, because seven in 10 are worried about the interest rates on their credit cards, especially those cash-strapped millennials at 74%. So kind of an interesting cultural trend here going on, right, Libby? Yeah, you know what's interesting about it is that younger Americans who haven't experienced the 
the rise of or what it means to bring down inflation are more optimistic that you can kind of solve it with a quick fix. You know, they're like, okay, just do what you have to do to bring it down. So while whereas older Americans seem a little bit more pessimistic about that, I think that's pretty fascinating because older Americans have obviously lived through the 1970s and the implications of um, playing with those inflation rates. And, and speaking rates. of old, speaking of older Americans, Libby, uh, I was wondering whether President Biden agrees with millennials on on rising uh, interest rates because obviously the midterms are just around the corner. And our Harvard-Harris poll this month, we found that 36%, only 36% approve of his handling of inflation. So watch this, watch this data, but interesting nonetheless. Let's talk about our first story. So we're going to jump right into it. Hybrid work, Libby, apparently is also happy work. So I want to ask you, you know, does gene and accounting get on your nerves more than usual? Well, it might have to do with where you work. Libby, this data found that hybrid workers are actually more tolerant of and patient toward their co-workers versus those who are either fully remote or in the office full-time. So here's the data. 58% of full-time office workers and 57% of fully remote workers say their co-workers are annoying, <laughs> right? So then we asked hybrid workers and only 47% say that. That's an 11-point difference in less aggravation. And then similarly, 40, uh, sorry, 58% of full-time office employees and 56% of fully remote workers think their co-workers are lazy. But again, those hybrid workers, only 45% think that. And so that, again, is like a 13-point swing in attitude. And then both full-time office and remote workers were more likely to report having co-workers that are incompetent at 53 and 50%. Same numbers roughly at being bad at their jobs. And yet again, when we compared them to their hybrid peers, those numbers were down between anywhere between 7 and 14% less points. So <laughs> Libby, what do you think's going on here? Are hybrid workers more chill? Are they buying gummies on the way into the office? What's going on? Yeah, look, I think the I think the takeaway is if you're spending too much time face to face with people and you're forced to do that, you're you're probably also in an aggravated sense because the <laughs> the landscape of work has changed. And then on the other hand, the remote workers, a lot of there can be a lot of miscommunication. On the other flip side of it, you know, don't have that face to face that human connection that sometimes bridge any kind of aggravations or really get to know your coworkers in a different way. So I think the long-term implication here is that as difficult as it is to figure out hybrid work, we constantly see the signs, the signals, the data that say that hybrid work is going to be probably the future of work. And it's really up to management to figure out how do you give people that flexibility and that understanding of of what they want and not just think of them in this kind of short-termism of we need to fix something now, but really long-term, why do people come into the office? How do you get them into the office and how do you foster that so that they don't find their coworkers so annoying or they don't find their coworkers so lazy or incompetent. You know, it's important to to create those levels of employee trust amongst employees as well and to think about that, but not to just force them all back into an office party that they don't want to partake in, you know, on a daily basis. But John, you know, what I'm interested in is, you know, we've seen in our data and I'd love if you could share some of that. It's interesting because Americans aren't, you know, gung-ho necessarily 
about hybrid either. They're really divided on where they want to work. Yeah, Libby. I mean, imagine a, a pie with three equal slices. And that is exactly how Americans this month feel about where they prefer to work. You have a third at 34% want to work from home permanently. And that is down two points from January. Then you have another third at 33% that want to be in the office permanently. Interestingly, that's up two points from January. And then that last slice of the pie, that last third at 33 wants to split time. They want to be that hybrid worker and that's unchanged. But I think, you know, it's important before we endorse hybrid and say that's the way to go. I agree with your point completely that you need to start to think long term because there's advantages and disadvantages to each. And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about the data that we've found where women and BIPOC professionals actually favor remote work. You know, we found employed women at 38 percent and BIPOC women at 48 percent wanted to work remotely, as do 42 percent of black professionals. And we have other data that I won't go into, but basically, Libby, you know, it said that they felt more esteem, they felt more heard working remotely. So clearly they're in office dynamics that need to be addressed if we're going to really build cultures and build inclusivity. And then on the age side, you have Gen X that prefers remote work at 41%, but Gen Z at 44% prefers the office. And you got millennials somewhere in between at hybrid at 39. So everybody is sort of carving out their own sort of philosophy here based on, on what they're looking for. Libby, I mean, what do you think this data suggests? I mean, it's a big challenge, right? What it ultimately suggests is that the future of work where we're at today is pretty nascent and just trying to figure it out. Like if you think about your pie, John, it's like it's just stirred up that pie and said, all right, go for it. It's, it's all over the place now totally. because you have the just different generational spread, different, you know, women, black professionals, BIPOC professionals. Everyone has kind of a different perspective of what they're getting from the workplace. But it's really important. What I would suggest is it's really important to study what is it about what people either want in the office, what they're getting from a remote work, and what are those, those underlying principles of mm. motivation that they're getting and those drivers, and then figure out a way to bring that back either into the office in a hybrid way or bring it into a remote remote work culture. Because I also think hybrid is probably the way, but a lot of remote cultures haven't had a chance to actually survive and successfully get up and running either, you know? And so there's a whole potential for remote work cultures to figure out their footing as well. I mean, I think the office culture has always existed. And so it's these new cultures that are in this nascent form that we're trying to figure out how they work, who they work for, and how do you get the most value long-term as an employer. But it's, it's a challenge to get through and it's something you have the way to figure it out is start studying today what the value is that people are getting from these different types of workforces and then bring them together in a overall strategy in the future. That's really interesting what you're saying. It's really sort of a new dynamic for managers, right? Which is to try to understand the motivations, understand the esteem, right? The, the productivity, like how do you kind of define your aspirations in these, I guess, these three slices of the pie? Because you could be doing different things in the office. You could be interacting in different ways. What would you say to managers? I mean, just practically, you know, and the ones I'm thinking of who we've talked to are managers that are saying, hey, I just want everybody back in the office. We This is 2019. Come on, you know, COVID's <laughs> over. Let's get yeah. after it. What do you say to those folks that are dealing with this messy pie? It's interesting because it's usually the what, what we've read and what we've heard from expert interviews.
interviews that we do with economists working in this field mm. is that it's actually senior, the most senior executives. So the C-suites, like I want everyone back in the office, that feels pretty good to them. That Those are the success measures that they've seen in the past, but it's a mid-level manager. So you have to think about millennials and Gen Xers who we see in our data either want to be hybrid or remote who are not reinforcing these policies. So there's this big division around, mm. especially return to the office that's, hey, senior level management says you have to be there. Mid-level management isn't actually going to make it happen or reinforce it. And so there's like a cultural clash and issue there. So I would say actually the the biggest piece of advice is more for senior level C-suite management to understand the point of view of their mid-level managers and of their management teams underneath them to see where that, that future of work is going. Because these are people in their like, you know, I would say 35 to 50 who are at these big corporate organizations, they're really moving towards what that workforce will look like in the next 10, 15 years. So you have to include what drives and motivates them. Otherwise, you get attrition, you get turnover, and you can't remain and gain that keep a hold of that talent. So it becomes kind of a big issue. I think it's a great point. So what do we have next? Yeah. So speaking of holding on to talent, this is time for our palate cleanser, you know, the number of the week that makes us kind of lean in or learn or laugh. And John, the, the big thing here is, you know, a brand that's going to court, but also is driving a lot of hot job attention right now. And that, in fact, is Twitter. Twitter is kind uh -huh. of the hottest job right now. And the background here is that Twitter and Elon Musk are due in court on October 17th. So in two weeks in a court battle over whether Elon Musk has to follow through on the merger and agreement he signed to buy Twitter. And just like a little piece of internet gold, you know, the fun things that got unleashed in the internet, one of them happened this week where you can find all the texts between Elon Musk and Larry Elson and Jack Dorsey and the current CEO of Twitter on NPR, New York Times. And it's just amazing to watch Elon Musk navigate his way through like, hey, I'm going to buy Twitter. I want to buy Twitter. And everyone's like, hell yeah, go do that. I put like $2 billion on it and just happened so quickly. So wow. um, listening and reading those texts is just kind of an interesting nerd thing that I like to do and maybe some of the listeners would like to do. But um, <laughs> to get back to the numbers, the numbers are interesting. So there's two sets of numbers here. Elon, even if he doesn't buy, end up having to go through the purchase order, it's not all bad news. Just the potential of Elon Musk buying Twitter is driving energy in Twitter's job market. According to Inverse, job interest in Twitter skyrocketed 263 percent since Elon Musk moved to take over the platform. So just a ton of new job energy. Wow. And then the second set of numbers comes from us. And we noticed at the Harris Poll that 59% of Americans just approve of the takeover in general. And over two and three Americans expect that Musk will actually have a positive impact on free speech. He will be able to improve its profitability of Twitter. And they expect Musk to improve the actual Twitter product. So I think 
John, the takeaway here is you're vulnerable when you don't have a market fit, you know, mm. or when you have a market fit, I should say. The people use your product, but you lack vision on the role you play in society. And users we've seen have really defined Twitter and the role it plays in society, but the company hasn't really created this big narrative for itself the same way its peers have. Like I was looking at the valuation or the revenue that LinkedIn generated last year compared to Twitter and it's, it doubles it, you know? And so just when you think of the potential of Twitter, if, because they'd never created a big narrative for themselves, it just allowed Elon Musk, who's, you know, a game changer, a big thinker to come in and create a ton of energy and momentum for the company. That's so interesting. I mean, that whole idea, Libby, that you're saying that if you don't go on the offense and and define your aspirations and and you're sort of what you stand for, someone else is going to do it for you. Yeah, that's right. It's that's exactly right. You don't define yourself. Someone else will. So you got to keep you got to tell your story and got to be loud and you got to be bold and and brave. Otherwise, an Elon Musk will come and do it for you. I think it's the fear of many businesses across the country this week. Okay, so let's go into our second and final story. This is, uh, I think, really fascinating. So Libby, we were out front at the Harris Poll um, doing research on quiet quitting. Obviously, we've shared some of that data here in, in the past, and that has been the story of the month. But what's really behind quiet quitting is also a quiet revolution around reskilling, upskilling, and reshuffling as employers gain more power in the market again. What's happening is employees are quietly preparing for what's next. Here's the numbers. So first of all, quiet quitting continues, Libby. We still see close to half of employees at 45% agree that they have stopped going above and beyond at their companies. That's of this as of this week. That includes 55% of millennials and 53% of Gen Z. Now, at the same time, in new data that we released recently with Bloomberg, employees feel like they're losing leverage in the marketplace. In a recent story, we found that 58 percent of American workers that we spoke with believe that companies have more leverage in the job market these days. And that's up five points from January. And at the same time in our data this week, two thirds of American workers are worried that companies will start cutting staff or hiring smaller numbers of employees. What you see then is this movement around quiet upskilling. Do we think, Libby, that'll be the new hashtag? Doesn't quite roll off your off your tongue. But quiet upskilling is in the background. And here are the numbers. Two-thirds of employees at 65% say the main reason they are learning new skills and doing professional development is to advance their careers or switch positions. And this is especially true among millennials at nearly three-quarters, 74%, and 71% of Black and Hispanic professionals. And lastly, at the same time, six in 10 employees say they're currently exploring new opportunities. Again, Black professionals at 76%, millennials at 72% and Hispanics professionals at 65%. So Libby, you're our labor expert. Uh, What do you make of these stats? What you see is most Americans and employees, like when we go out and talk to people, they really feel like they're this in this place of vulnerability and insecurity, that they have to build their own safety net. And they really think of themselves as a free agent in a free market. And that's mostly because there's this just 
broken trust and loyalty system. Like there's, especially with younger generations, they don't see the advantage of being loyal to their employer because they feel like their employer, once the employer gets power again, will just cut them, reduce their wages, reduce their position altogether. And that's where you start to see some of the fear in your numbers around, Mm -hmm. oh, they're going to lay me off or something's going to happen. So there's a real big implication here is like if you don't help and guide employees to what's next, they will take it upon themselves. And what we saw in the beginning of this year, our partnership with American Staffing Association is that 80% of workers considered professional development and training to be important when accepting a job offer. But just Mm. half of those workers said that their current employers offer professional development and training opportunities. And across the board, we see this gap all the time happening where employees say, it's really important that I'm able to upskill, that I'm able to learn new skills, et cetera. But for years now, we've seen a a disinvestment in Mm. the ability to actually invest in employees' skills and up training. So I think that's essentially why we're getting to this quiet quit and then quiet upskill, because if employees don't see an investment plan, they don't understand how to navigate their career, they're not going to wait for you to catch up. What do you think about that, John? Yeah, I mean, I think what's also so telling in this, Libby, is that 77%, I mean, to your point exactly, 77% of American workers report that they feel like they're on their own to determine their career development. Just pause there, Libby. I mean, that is really a stark number. I mean, you have companies talking about culture, you know, famously Peter Drucker, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Everyone is talking about culture. Everybody's talking about, you know, how important their cultures are and how important equity is and inclusion and and all these really important things. But when you really drill down to it in brass tacks, you have employees, you know, if these were consumers, you'd have frustrated consumers. But when you look at the labor market, employees feel like they're on their own. I think that is a tremendous challenge for businesses, particularly not only in this very strong labor market at the moment that's getting a little bit shaky, but the fact that how are you going to really build your culture and get your employees to believe in your mission and your vision if you have this sense where they feel like they're adrift and there isn't really honesty in the relationship. What you just said made me think of something that I have to bring up too. I think it's worth saying we're very empathetic to employers on this. And I wonder if one of the reasons employers aren't reinvesting or upskilling their employees right now is because they don't know, they fundamentally can't figure out where to upskill them or reinvest them or the bridges to build what's next because so much has changed in their industry or their workforce that it's hard to figure out what that next path is. Like we spend a lot of time talking to people about what the next three, five, 10 years look like. Mm. And what you can see with our client base and just clients in general is it's really hard to imagine what those things are. And so if you don't spend the time thinking about what's going to happen in three, five, 10 years, you also are missing, well, where do we build the past towards the future with employees? And so you're both a little bit in the dark about it. So it almost seems like you need to start with where's our vision going? Where's the future going? How do those things connect? And then how do we bring employees along that journey? Because if you're missing one of those things, then you actually can't help employees and they become their own free agents. I think it's a really, really great point. I mean, are there any practical applications you can think of, Libby, here? I mean, I think 
One for me, obviously, is sort of eliminating some of the hierarchy in companies as you're thinking about mission building and sort of strategic planning. You know, how often are Gen Z involved in these? Do you need a Gen Z board? Do you need them as advisors? I mean, how do we how do we look at, you know, BIPOC women and, and sort of building equity and inclusion inside the company? And everybody's obviously doing these things, but how are they all being connected to the the larger pathways of where the senior people are trying to take the company? I think there's, there's a lot of tangible applications. And then I like to think about like, what are the where are you steering the ship ultimately and in what context are you steering that ship so if you know that you know your if you know you have to steer the ship more towards sustainability and more towards a livable planet or world then you might also be steering jobs towards that area and then Mm -hmm. upskilling employees in that way so i think i think about it that way first but i love your idea of the gen z boards in fact i have um a good family friend of ours his son in San Francisco, he's like 16 and he joined the, there's like a coalition of Gen Z's who are joining the city board, the mayor's office of San Francisco, helping them figure out how to move San Francisco forward in a more inclusive way. So it's, it's kind of like an interesting way to think about how do you give younger people or future generations seats at the leadership table early so that they can steward next generation priorities. Totally. And we had Maggie and Cole this summer, remember? they came up with that idea mm-hmm. to pull summer interns on their intern experience and that was a story that that Bloomberg picked up so listen to those voices well hey we should let people get back to the office or back to work <laughs> whatever they're doing Libby I always love talking to you this is America this week from the Harris poll on behalf of Libby Rodney and myself thanks for listening and if you're interested please send us a, a polling idea or give us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple and lastly we want to thank as always our executive producers Ben Abramson and Jacqueline aka Jack Cooney I think that's it for America this week. Libby, have yourself a great weekend. You too, John. Thank you, everyone. Take care, everybody.